0: Hey, everybody. Hey. Before I get started, uh, today is actually a really big day in the life of our church. Uh, well, actually, especially for the Blackhawk Fitchburg family. Today is their first Sunday worshiping in their brand new building. So, wait, wait, watch this. Watch this. Watch this. <laughs> so I'm not gonna... All right. Are we ready? All right. You got it? Yeah, here we go. Okay, you started early, Trevor? All right, there I we go. go. Noise! Yes! All the sites and venues! Yeah! Woo. Yes! <laughs> oh man, that is awesome! <laughs> oh, we we just praise God so much for what He's doing in Fitchburg. Um, you know, the, the Fitchburg building is new, but the Fitchburg community, the blockhouse has is is, is, is old, and they've been there for for seven years. Okay, for seven years. Imagine converting a middle school to a church and converting it back to a middle school every single Sunday for seven years. Imagine early winter freezing dark mornings using blow torches to melt the ice off the wheels of the trailers. That actually happened, by the way. <laughs> so, you now these tougher moments, God has used them to form a sense of community, a sense of volunteering spirit at Fitchburg, which is going to be now just going kind to of redirected to to deeper impact in the the community, the city of Fitchburg. So uh, uh, we are grateful for the Fitchburg community. We're grateful for the generosity of people who gave to reach. We are grateful and we look forward to what God's gonna do using this building to affect and transform lives. So uh, let me pray for us. Okay, let me pray for us and pray for what's going on in Fitchburg. Uh, Father, uh, <laughs> we love what you're doing in Fitchburg. We're, we celebrate, we glorify your name, we praise you, we, are, we, are, we, are, we're, we, we celebrate along with the people we just saw on the screen. They, they are so excited today, and, and we celebrate along with them. Um, they are such a great community, and they have been so faithful. Uh, and we thank you for the, for the generosity of your people. Your, your, your people have made this happen, and, and we are grateful for that. And we just we, we we commissioned this building. We want to see this building be a place where people come to know you. People get lives get transformed. They meet you, and they change their city because of it. We give you praise and thanks. And in Jesus', pray, in Jesus name, all God's people said, "Amen." All right. Well, let's get started. Uh, my name is Charles. I wanna uh, I wanna greet all of you who are here, and those of you joining us by video in Tradition the Gallery downtown in Fitchburg, <laughs> those watching online and those of you listening to our podcast, uh, to the Chinese speakers in our congregation, to everyone, welcome to Blackhawk Church. Now, we have been in this series called Unexpected Kingdom, and we started in the fall. Today is the 15th and the final sermon of the series for this year. Next week is Christmas at Blackhawk. The week after that is Worship Where You Are, And then in January, we're going to do a series on relationships we have with each other. The name of the series is, It's Complicated. (laughs) So we don't pick a mark again until February 23rd. And from then on, we're going to read Mark all the way through to Easter. So we get to actually read about the resurrection of Jesus right in time for Easter. So today, it's not a series finale. It's more like a fall season finale. Now, and the passage is appropriate. This passage is kind of the pivot of the entire Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark has two big halves, and this passage, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 34, is the, is the bridge of the two halves. So, befitting a season finale, uh, there's big time revelations all over the place going on here, right? And, and Jesus answers the central mystery of the book who is the real Jesus? And, This question, we believe, is not just central to the book of Mark. It's actually the most important question you will have to answer in your life. Let's get into it. Verse 27 begins with, Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So a bit of geography. Uh, Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee at the foot of Mount Hermon. Before this moment, Jesus and his disciples, they travel around the Sea of Galilee in every which way, all different directions. From this moment on, Jesus is going to travel from Caesarea Philippi in the north and head straight south to Jerusalem. Jesus now begins his final journey. So... No time to mess around anymore, no time to beat around the bush. All right, Jesus has been preaching about the kingdom of God coming, and the question on people's mind is, well, who is Jesus? What is his role in the kingdom? Now, Jesus hasn't, really hasn't said anything about this. He's been hinting, he's been showing but not telling, but now it's time for clarity. So Jesus brings up the question himself. On the way, Jesus asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. So the people say that Jesus is a prophet. Now, in the Bible, prophets are not fortune tellers. They're not about predicting the future. Prophets in the Bible are God's spokespersons. They, they, they carry a message from God to the people, uh, usually to the king. They speak truth to power. And they also do some miracles, So the people think that Jesus is one of them, a prophet. He's announcing the kingdom of God. He is God's messenger. He teaches truths from God. So that is one way to answer the question, who is Jesus? He is a prophet. Today, many people think this way about Jesus. They probably wouldn't use the word prophet. They would use the word like a teacher or a good moral teacher. And that makes sense. He has great material. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, actually, he borrowed that. But the golden rule, do unto others, that's Jesus, right? Uh, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Uh, judge not, lest you be judged. Really good stuff. Today, he'd be doing TED Talks, right? Or he'd be the author of bestsellers like Chicken Soup for the Soul, or Ten Ways to Live the Good Life. Now, lots of parents, you know, we, we, we want our children to have a good moral education. And we want them to learn right from wrong. So we come to church, and we, we want to learn from Jesus, So that's one way to answer the question, who is Jesus? He is a prophet or a good moral teacher. That's what the crowd says. That's what the people on the outside say. What about the people on the inside? But what about you, Jesus asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. The Greek word there is is Christos, from which we get the word Christ. In Hebrew, it would be Mashiach, which we get the word Messiah. Messiah is the title given to the person who is to become the king of the final kingdom of God. Now, this word Messiah, the last time it showed up was actually in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The very first sentence of the book, right? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus the Messiah, son of God. Hasn't shown up since, until now. This is the big revelation, this is the big moment. And what what Peter is saying is, Jesus, we don't think you're a messenger from God. We don't think you just announced the kingdom. You are the kingdom. You're the king that's pulling together the followers, and together we're gonna build this kingdom from scratch. And how does Jesus respond? anyone about this? And we're like, why not? I mean, come on, Jesus. isn't it about time. Come on, right? And, and our response reveals, really, that we don't quite get the meaning of the word Messiah. Uh, we, we, we tend to think the word Messiah is kind of a spiritual title. It relates to Jesus' divinity. And, and what, what we don't really get is that the Messiah, at his core is a political title. Uh, I wanna take a quick detour to another passage in the Old Testament that really shapes how first century Jews see the Messiah, okay? And the passage is Psalm 2. Uh, Psalm 2 is a kind of a futuristic image of what it would look like if Messiah was ruling on Earth. It begins like this, why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against Yahweh. When you see Lord in all caps, that's God's personal name, Yahweh. Against Yahweh and against his Mashiach. Against his Messiah. Why are they banding against Yahweh and his Messiah? Verse 3, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The psalmist is painting a picture with these three verses, very quickly, a big picture of the entire world under the dominion and power of Yahweh and his Messiah. And there's kind of a worldwide conspiracy. You have the leaders getting together going, we are tired of being under the Messiah. We want to overthrow the power. We want to break the chains, cast off the shackles, arise everyone, revolution. How does Yahweh respond to this? Verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. <laughs> the Lord scoffs at them. <clears throat> he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. So Yahweh is going to rebuke and terrify these rebellious nations. Now, How is he going to do that? Verse 6, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. But my, Mount Zion is another term for Jerusalem. So this king right here, that is the Messiah. So Yahweh is going to rebuke and terrify the rebellious nations through his Messiah. Next section, we have a change in voice. Now, this is the Messiah talking. Messiah is going to tell us what Yahweh tells him and what Yahweh, Yahweh gives him instruction on how to deal with these rebellious nations. I will proclaim Yahweh's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I have become your father. So the relationship between Yahweh and the Messiah is tight. They are father-son relationship. And so this is still Yahweh talking. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Just ask me and the nations are yours and this is what you should do with them. Verse nine, you will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. So Yahweh says to the Messiah, You're my son, the nations are yours, crush them. Last section of the psalm, lessons for our lives. Well, actually, not our lives. These are like the lives of the rebellious kings, okay? Therefore, you kings... Any kings here? Be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve Yahweh with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, the Messiah, or kiss up to his son, the Messiah, or he will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the Messiah, the emperor of the world. Are you getting a sense? Are you getting a sense? for who the Messiah is supposed to be? Are you getting a feeling for why Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody? You see, to claim the Messiah title is to court trouble with the Jewish and the Roman authorities. In Mark chapter 11, Jesus openly accepts his messianic identity, and he is dead within a week. Jesus says, shh, because he's not quite ready to die yet. Now, here's the thing. Psalm 2 shapes how first-century Jews understand the Messiah, which makes what Jesus says next almost impossible to comprehend. Verse 31, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Jesus starts teaching, and what he teaches is mind-boggling. He says the Messiah is going to suffer and die. Now, that's just nuts. The the Messiah in Psalm 2 does not do suffering. The Messiah in Psalm Psalm 2 is robed in majesty and glory. He is the son of God. He has the backing of the creator God of the universe. He is the one that all the other kings and and leaders, they're the one kissing up to him. They're trembling before him, scared. There is absolutely zero expectation in the first century that the Messiah is going to suffer and die. None whatsoever. Now, there is this other person in the Old Testament who is supposed to suffer and die. There is this mysterious figure called the Servant of Yahweh. He shows up in the book of Isaiah, and he shows up in these amazing passages called Servant Songs. And one of the most famous is, Psalm, is Isaiah chapter 53, in which it describes the servant suffering and dying for God's people. You're very familiar with this passage. Here's a sampling of that chapter. But he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way and Yahweh, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Now, we are so used to connecting this passage to Jesus the Messiah that we rarely ever notice that Isaiah never ever says the servant is the Messiah. In fact, Isaiah actually tells us exactly who the servant is. Isaiah says the servant is actually Israel. Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. Isaiah says clearly, the servant is Israel. And nowhere in the Old Testament does anybody ever say, hey, the the servant of Yahweh and Messiah are the same person. Why would they? I mean, you have the glorious Messiah of Psalm 2 who rules the world with an iron fist. And then you have the servant of Yahweh, Isaiah 53, who suffers and dies. One delivers his people through power and might, the other delivers people through redemptive suffering. They don't come together, they don't go together at all. And so Jesus is the first person to make the connection. He says to his disciples, I am the Messiah. I am also the suffering servant. And just like that, Jesus redefines what it means to be the Messiah. The Messiah suffers for his people. The Messiah dies for his people. And this is all just complete nonsense. And not surprisingly, Peter loses it. Jesus spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus speaks clearly about this. Okay? When was the last time Jesus speaks clearly about anything? <laughs> but here he knows he has to because there's absolutely no way the disciples can figure this out by themselves. That the disciple, that the Messiah is supposed to die. And even when he speaks clearly, it still doesn't work, right? Peter's like, psst, psst, Jesus, come on, come on, come on, come on, Jesus, come on. Hey, Jesus, I know you're under a lot of stress, okay? But you can't talk like this, all right? you, you just got to buck up. It's all right. It's all going to be good, all right? You're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and we'll kick out the Romans. It'll be fine. We have faith in you. You got to have some faith in yourself. That's my interpretation of Peter rebuking Jesus, okay? So, While Peter's going on and on, Jesus is looking at his disciples, looking at their reaction, and he's like, I got to stop this. And he just shuts Peter down. Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. Now, let's just be clear. Uh, We don't think Peter is Satan. Uh, Well, I don't even think he's saying that Peter's demon-possessed, okay? I think what Jesus is really saying is this, that Peter is doing the work of Satan. He's doing what Satan wants done. Think about it. You think Jesus wants to suffer and die? You think that's going to be peachy keen for him? He is gritting his teeth. He is stealing himself for a horrendous ordeal that is coming up. And now his closest follower is telling him, oh, no, don't worry about that. Don't do that. We go to Jerusalem. You know, you do your finger snap. Out goes the Romans. It's all going to be cool. It's going to be good. Life of glory and honor and ease. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You are trying to derail me from my mission. You're trying to tempt me away from my calling. You're not doing God thinking. You're doing human thinking. Peter, your entire understanding of the kingdom of God is way off. And so Peter shows us a second way to answer the question, who is Jesus? Peter and his disciples, they believe in Jesus who is the glorious Messiah of Psalm 2. Now, All of us, we know Jesus suffers and dies, right? We know that part. But some of us, we we haven't fully grasped what it means to follow a crucified Messiah. So in essence, in in practical terms, we're kind of in Peter's shoes. We think like Peter. We worship the glorious Messiah of Psalm 2. What does that look like? Well, the logic goes like this. we know the Son of God, we know the King, we have an in with Him, so we get a little bit of that good stuff, right? right? I have people who tell me that if I follow Jesus properly, I, wouldn't get, I would not get sick, ever. I have people tell me that, Charles, if you have enough faith, you actually shouldn't buy life insurance to protect your children in case something happens to you. To follow Jesus means protection, means health, means blessing, means prosperity. To be rich is a sign of God's blessing. Glorious king, glorious nation, glorious people. Peter wants a Messiah without the suffering, and so do we. And Jesus says, that's human thinking. That's how the world understands kingship. And so Jesus offers a third answer to the big question. But before you get there, I just want to give you a quick heads up, because what Jesus says next is just absolutely radical. And... Um, He's laying out what it means to follow him and, he, and he's laying out kind of his ideal image of what it means to be his follower. So what I want to do is make sure we understand what Jesus is saying and then we can talk through how we respond. Okay, here goes. Then Jesus called a crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it Boom. Now, let's let's make sure we understand Jesus. Um, First thing, Jesus calls the crowd. He doesn't just talk to the 12. This is not a calling just for some kind of a subset of super disciples. This calling is for everyone. Second, he says to everyone, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. Now, what does take up your cross mean? Now, some people use the phrase in a way that suggests it means something like to endure hardship or to, uh, you know, be patient through a time of trial or difficulty. They use the phrase like, oh, this is my cross to bear. Now, I hope I don't offend anyone. But to take up your cross absolutely does not mean to endure hardship or to keep it together during difficult times. It absolutely does not mean that. There is only one occasion in first century Roman Empire in which you would pick up your cross, and that is when you have just been sentenced to death in a judicial proceeding. At this point, they would hand you a piece of lumber, and you would pick it up, and you would carry it, and you would walk to the place of your execution. Once you get there, they would tie your arm or nail your arm to that piece of lumber, They would hoist the whole, your body, and the lumber up to a pole. They would fix that lumber there to the pole, and you would hang there, dangling there, naked, until you die. That is the only time anybody would take up their cross. The cross is an instrument for torture and for execution. It's about pain and death. The story is told that before 1960s in America, when an inmate is walking from death row to the electric chair, this person would be surrounded by guards who would be calling out, dead man walking, dead man walking. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but the meaning of that phrase is obvious, right? The person is alive, the person is walking, and yet from the perspective of our society, that person is already dead. To take up the cross means to take that walk to the place of your execution. It means to live as dead man walking. Today, Jesus would say, if you want to be my disciple, follow me to the electric chair. If you want to be my disciple, follow me to the lethal injection room. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses your life for me and for the gospel will save it. This is not metaphorical. This is not symbolism. Many, 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 many Christ followers have lost their lives because they follow Jesus. But this is not just about dying for Jesus. At the heart of this call is about our attitude toward living. Jesus says, look, if you want to follow a crucified Messiah, you need to live as though you have already been sentenced to death. You need to live as though you have no legal status, no rights. As far as the world is concerned, you are dead. And if we are dead to the world, we live with a boldness and a recklessness that is sold out for the kingdom of God. Everything we say and do and think is for the kingdom without thoughts to our future, our status, our rights. That's what it means to follow a crucified Messiah. The cross defines Jesus. The cross defines his followers. That's what Jesus is calling for. How do we respond to that? Well, first thing, um, and maybe I shouldn't say this on stage, but I will. Um, I can't tell you how to live that out because I have no idea what it's like to live like that. Um, I have been following Jesus for over 30 years. I have never for one moment lived from a place of a complete rejection of my rights, my status, my future. Now, Richard's church history, I've seen men and women do this, so it's not impossible. I've never done it, never came close. So today is Hypocrisy Sunday. (laughs) Do as I do, do as I say, not as I do. Second, this passage is absolutely brutal. And a very easy response would be wow, that's just too hard. That's just way out there. There's no way we can do that. We can't follow Jesus. Before you go there, just hang on. Okay? We need to read this passage within the context of the entire Gospel of Mark. Now think about this. Let me ask you a question. You've been reading Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, does Jesus get his ideal disciple? No! Not even close, right? Four weeks ago, the disciples' hearts are hardened. Last week, Jesus is grilling his disciples in the boat because they're clueless. Today, Peter says to Jesus, hey, you're the Messiah. Five minutes later, Jesus is calling him Satan. When they get to Jerusalem, one of the 12 will betray Jesus. Another one will say, I don't know this guy, Jesus. I've never met him before in my life. When Jesus gets arrested, they all run off. The only people at the foot of the cross are the women who follow Jesus, When Jesus walks to the cross, he walks there alone. No one follows him. No one. In the gospel of Mark, there is a yawning gap between Jesus' ideal and the disciples' reality. Because people who follow Jesus are people who are deeply flawed. They are broken people living in a broken world. And that is us. And Jesus does not give up on us. So what we need to do is to hang on together two critical concepts. We need to just pull them together. We can embrace the radical nature of Jesus' call if at the same time we also embrace the radical nature of his grace. On the cross, every sin is forgiven. Every brokenness is redeemed. We are accepted without condition due to the extravagant price paid by Jesus. Is it surprising that such a radical grace would be accompanied by such a radical call to discipleship? Is it surprising that because Jesus, the Son of God, the the Messiah in glory and power, dies for us, that we would be called to surrender our lives to Him and to live a new life shaped by the life of the, our crucified Messiah. To follow Jesus is to live with those two realities at the same time. Every day we revel, we celebrate the grace and the forgiveness of God. And every day we cooperate with the Holy Spirit to lead us onto the path toward the cross. I want to close our time together um, with a simple question. Who do you say is Jesus? The culture tells us he's a good teacher. He has good material. He can help us live the good life. And we bring that expectation to church. So I wanna make it clear what we're doing here. What we're doing here is not teaching you how to live the good life. What we're doing here is being the kingdom. Being the people, being the community that Jesus is building to establish his reign, his dominion, his power over this earth. Who do you say is Jesus? Is he this, the glorious Messiah, the son of God in power? He is that. But when we ignore the suffering servant part of his identity, we think human thoughts. We think, oh, glorious king, we get some of the goodies. Blessing, protection. Protection. Prosperity, wealth. Who do you say is Jesus? Jesus tells his disciples, I am the Messiah. I am also the suffering servant. And to follow a suffering, crucified Messiah means to take up our cross, to live a life of dead man walking, to cast away the fleeting dreams of this world. And at the same time, revel, exalt, glory in the grace of God and his forgiveness. Radical grace, radical discipleship. We have a, a few minutes left over. I want to invite you into a time of prayer and contemplation. I want you to quiet down. I need to calm myself down a little bit too. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, create some space for you to Meditate a bit and answer the question for you, for all of us here. Who do you say is Jesus? Who do you say is Jesus? And while you're doing that, I'm, I want to talk to a kind of a small, smaller group of people um, in the room and all the sites and venues. Uh, some of you here, you've been checking out Jesus, checking out the faith. And you've kind of been unsure. And maybe today you have come to a place where you think, yeah, I believe Jesus is the Messiah if that's where you are, I would encourage you to pray something like this. God in heaven, I believe Jesus is the king, that he is the Messiah, that he also suffered and died for me and for the world and I want to follow him. If you pray something like that, that's awesome and I want to encourage you after the service and all the sites and venues, just come on to the front, talk to me, talk to to a venue pastor. We have resources for you. Um, as you begin this journey to follow Jesus. But for everyone else, uh, join me as I close this in prayer. Father, we, we look at Jesus' call and we're like, wow, <laughs> this is not where my life is. This is this so far. At the same time, we, 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 we revel and we just embrace your grace your love for us, your forgiveness on the cross, and we know that we don't have to live this out perfectly. What we, what we want is to, to, to know you, to be with you, and we, what we want is to, to move toward this ideal you have. We want to be the kind of people who can take up the cross and to walk and to live in a way that says, the world is dead to me. I only see the kingdom. Help us, Father, as we do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.